Well, amen. You can have a seat if you're not already uh, seated. If you have a copy of scriptures, we're in John chapter 11, right there at the end, verse 45, uh, on to chapter 12. If it's your first time uh, during this series, we're in a series called This Changes Everything, where we're looking specifically at the seven signs in John's gospel uh, as we move closer and closer to Easter. I told you last week we looked at the sixth sign, that's Lazarus being raised from the dead, but we're going to take two-week kind of a pause in this uh, series, but it's not really a pause. It's building to the final sign. It's building to Easter uh, Sunday where we're at in the text. So we're looking at two responses to Jesus. And as I was thinking about those responses, it jogged my memory this very week, uh, about six years ago, my now wife, at the time girlfriend, uh, was, we were headed to Colorado. We were headed to Colorado to go on a skiing and snowboarding trip for the week of spring break uh, with a college ministry that uh, she was connected to. And I and my uh, college roommate at the time went with her and her college roommate. We all kind of all four caravaned uh, to Pagosa Springs, Colorado to go skiing and snowboarding. The first day we were there, uh, we were not naive enough to think we knew what we were doing. It was all of our first times uh, skiing and snowboarding. And I was the only one that snowboarded because I was too cool to ski like everybody else. Um, but we, so we took the class. We took the skiing and the snowboarding school. After a couple of hours of that, we felt well-equipped enough to go down on the easy slopes and the bunny slopes and all those kind of things. We did that like 10, 15 times and... Um, my at the time girlfriend, now wife, was studying the map and she's like, hey, let's get a little bit more adventurous. Let's go on a different trail. Let's go on a different path. And if you've ever been uh, skiing or snowboarding, you know those trails. It's like you have to know uh, Morris code or something to break the code. There's all these color coded things and there's these shapes, there's these diamonds, triangles, squares and circles and you're supposed to know the skill level based off of these shapes and colors and so it's like, oh, you're going down a green circle, whatever that means. Uh, never didn't see any green circles but uh, she charted this course like, oh, if we go all the way to the top this time and follow these different symbols and colors will go down kind of an easy medium path. I'm like, okay, let's do this thing. So all four of us got on the ski lift. We go all the way to the top and we start making our way down. We're turning left and then right, left and then right, and all these different uh, things. And they're kind of leading her and her roommate are kind of leading the pack. I'm kind of third in line and my roommate's somewhere behind me because he really didn't have it figured out yet. Let's be honest. And so we get and we make this turn. We go around this curve in this mountain. All of a sudden, all you see is like open landscape like the side of the mountain. And that's where you're supposed to go. You're supposed to go off this thing. And I'm like, are we sure this is the easy path? And all I see is my, my at the time girlfriend, now wife, she locks up the brakes and she kind of sits down on the side of this mountain and her roommate does the same. And I get there and I stop and we're like looking down on the side of this cliff. And it's like, she's like, I think this is what they call a double black diamond. I was like, is that good or bad? She's like, I think it's not good. And all I hear in the distance is, what are y'all doing? And my roommate comes like swarming up and he just flies off the side, just goes, like. <laughs> and all we see is like the episode of like Looney Tunes where he's like uh, the road runner and all you see is like arms and legs and like dust flying down the side. And so with that information that we had, like, hey, I'm not doing this, I take off my snowboard and we went down on our hind ends. Like we just slid down 
And it was the most embarrassing thing ever because that was exactly the trail that the ski lift went over. So you had like all these skiers just watching us slide down on our rear ends. And I was like, well, it's better than dying, okay? Like, <laughs> and in that moment, with that story is, with the information that I had, I, I responded. I saw an open cliff and a stopped skier. I'm stopping. And the same is true, right? My, my roommate responded with the information he had. He's like, what are these idiots doing? Boom, and he flies off. And in our text today that we just heard read, we're gonna have these two groups that I see in these texts of this response to what they've seen of Jesus up to this point. We have the response of the religious leaders in Judas, and we have the response of Mary. And we're gonna have to wrestle with this question from our text in scripture today is, how does that lead us to respond to Jesus? How does what Jesus has presented to us in the scriptures and in our life lead us to respond to him? Because this is how the Jewish leaders respond. Verse 45 of John chapter 11. It says this, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, remember our scene right before that, they had come to weep because their brother Lazarus had died and he was buried in a tomb. They had seen what he did, that he is Jesus. They seen what he did. What did he do? He raised Lazarus back from the dead, from death that he was in. He was real gone. He was four days dead. He stank at that point. And Jesus raised him back to life. And so their response was they believed in him. Every time this word has popped up in the text, we've talked about what this word means. It means full trust. So they responded to what they saw Jesus do in full trust. They believed in him. Verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees. There's another response right there in the second verse. There's another response. The others responded like, hey, we should go tell the leaders. So they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. There's that word. A sign, remember, is something that points to something greater than itself. So Jesus does the sign of Lazarus, but it's not about just Lazarus. It's about who he is in the midst of this. In verse 48, the religious leaders in their board meeting that they're assembling in this moment, they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So these religious leaders, they know that the Jewish people are doing these two responses. Some of them are coming to them because they're leery of who this miracle healer is. And others are kind of all in. They're following Jesus. They're believing that this is the one we've been waiting on. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior, the one that we've hoped in. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees the, the, um, and the Sadducees, these religious leaders in this moment, they're worried at what this might cost them. They're worried at what this might cost them to the Romans. And they're motivated not by the actual well-being of the people. If you, if you study this text in verse 48, it says they're motivated by what their status in the nation would cost. It says, if we allow this to persist, if we allow this to go on, we will lose our place and our nation. That they're motivated by self-preservation in this moment because look at how their leader 
leads them to act. Verse 49. But one of them, that's Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And what, I want to pause right here in this first phrase because John highlights who was the high priest that year for doing, he's probably doing one of two things, probably both. The first thing is, if we think about the Old Testament uh, high priest, the role of high priest, that role was designed not to be exited until death. Until he passed away, the high priest would remain the high priest until he died. But the Romans had made this high priest a puppet figure, one that they could take in and take out at their will based on how well that high priest listened to them listen to what they instructed. They had made the high priest not an office to lead the people of God into worship, but had made that office into a political figure to be moved like a chess piece. And John is probably making this joke in this text right here to say, yeah, like that's actually possible to do it that year, to give it as a political rotation cycle. That's kind of funny. But he's also probably just highlighting like, hey, Caiaphas was the guy. Caiaphas is the guy. And a high priest, you don't have to know a lot about the Old Testament system. It's just the highest ranking official um, in the priestly order. And he instructs them like this. He says, first, you know nothing at all. This phrase literally means you are ignorant. Like you don't understand what's happening. He's looking at his um, his peers in this moment, in this board meeting, telling them that they are blinded by this. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not for the whole nation should perish. 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not only not for, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Let's talk about Caiaphas's words. He says, he, notice his motivation in verse 50. His motivation is not what the people actually need, but his motivation is to preserve the Jewish leadership. He says, it's better for you. He's not concerned with the actual people that these Pharisees are called to lead and to serve, but he's concerned about preserving their position, their power, their authority. He says, it's better for you. You don't understand. You know nothing at all. He is you-centered. And he's concerned. He's like, hey, we gotta, we gotta keep the power. We don't want to lose the nation. We don't want the nation to perish, he says. But little did he know one generation later in AD 70, Jerusalem would fall. The temple would be put to destruction and ruin. In fact, here's an oil painting by uh, a, an Italian painter in 1867 of that day where the temple fell and it was destroyed by the Romans. That it would fall. It would be put to utter destruction soon. But he didn't know that. Nor did he know exactly the words that he was saying himself. Because what Caiaphas, Caiaphas probably meant in verse 50 is he did not really mean it in a religious sense of, yes, we're, we're putting the son of God, this is the plan of God all along. He didn't know that. He didn't understand what he was doing. 
He didn't understand the words he was actually saying, but the word that he uses is he, he uses this word to mean to devote to death, to put on Jesus the sins of the people, if you will, so maybe they would be spared in some kind of way. But what's ironic in this moment, but not ironic because God knows all things and oversees all things, is the exact same language that he uses for Jesus is the exact same language that was used for the scapegoat on the day of atonement in the book of Leviticus for the Old Testament sacrificial system. In Leviticus 16, 15, you can see in comparison with John eleven fifty, 50, with Caiaphas' words, Moses or is instructed by the law that, hey, this, then he shall kill the high priest, shall kill the goat of sin offering that is for the people. And Caiaphas, the high priest that year, of Jesus' death would say in John eleven fifty, it is better for you that one man should die for the people. That Caiaphas was devoting Jesus to death so that he could maintain political power so the Romans wouldn't be upset, so the Romans wouldn't take back over, so the Romans would spare them. But for John, Jesus was dying as the Lamb of God who had came to take away the sin of the world. And he was that sacrifice. He was the way to true, true life and life to the full. And even more than that, more than just the scapegoat, the purpose at Jesus' death, if you look in the next verse, it says not only for the nation only, verse 52, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. That John says from Jesus' own words in John 10, 10, that Jesus came to give us life and life to the full. He says at the end of his book in John 20, verse 30, that by believing in the name of Jesus, you would have life in his name. And here he says that Jesus is going to die so that he can gather up the children, not only of this nation, but all those who are scattered abroad across every nation. Because Jesus didn't come to die just for one people in one time, but for all people of all time who would call upon his name to have life. And not just life for one day, ethereal life in heaven to have fire insurance when we die, but life to the full, a better quality of life, a life that's driven by purpose in following Jesus in the life that he sets out in front of us. A life that is better in every possible way. But these religious leaders in their boardroom meeting, they start conspiring of how are we going to accomplish this messy deed? How are we going to put him to death? How are we going to accomplish this? And in verse 53, you see their desire. But in verse 54, you see what Jesus did in the next events, that he decides to stay hidden until it was time, until that moment arised. And then we're not sure how many of uh, the time length that the events from verse 55 to the end of chapter 11 happen, but people are curious, where's Jesus? You think he'll show up to this? Like, you think he'll come out of the mountains wherever he's hiding and, and show up to us? And we're not sure how long those events transpire. In fact, if you study this next passage in John chapter 12, compare it with your other uh, gospels in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they all have uh, a story at which where Jesus gets anointed. But if you start putting these on a timeline, you will start thinking, well, is, who's wrong here and who's right? 
does the Bible, do these gospels actually contradict? Because one of them has him, him anointing after Passover. One has before Passover. And, and what's going on here? We've talked about in John's gospel every week that most scholars and most uh, theologians look at John's gospel and John's not trying to put things on a linear timeline. He's just not. He's trying to thematically organize his gospel intentionally so that we see Jesus for who he is. So John places this anointing before uh, the triumphal entry next week in John 12. Others place it after. And most would say that John is just organizing this in an intentional way. And, and here's why. We're going to look at it in chapter 12, verse 1. It says this. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for the, him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one who was reclining with him at the table. So we go from a boardroom meeting to a dinner scene. From the boardroom to the kitchen table. And if this date is accurate that Jesus is here on the Sabbath day meal. He's here at the end of the Sabbath to celebrate with friends, one at which he has brought back from the dead, I might add. This is a celebratory time. The same two sisters who doubted Jesus and had immature faith last week that we looked at, both of them that said, if you would have been here, you could have done something. Yeah, those sisters, they're sitting around this meal together. And John most likely is painting this picture that not only from the previous verses we read is Jesus that Passover lamb who will be the sacrifice for the children of God, but also that he is on the Sabbath day, the true and ultimate rest for all people, for all people who would come to him. He alone is able to give that proper rest that directs us towards God, towards Jesus himself. Not just to take a good nap, but to rest, that our souls could be put at ease, that we are made right with God through Jesus. So with this in mind, it's gonna be slightly different. I wanna show you this oil painting. This is not art class, but there were just two really good paintings from this text this week from a French painter. I want you to look at this painting as I read this scene as John paints it. From John chapter 12. This Sabbath day meal with the disciples and probably other people. And it says this at some point during the meal, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, it was he who was about to betray him, said, why does this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because it was he a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will do not always have me. What's going on here in this scene? 
We have a Sabbath day meal and Mary at some point in this meal decides to take this expensive perfume made with pure nard, 300 denarii we're told is the cost of this perfume, which 300 denarii would be about a year's salary. So think about your year's salary, buying a single bottle of perfume with it. And it wasn't uncommon for this to be a normal practice that people would buy expensive things for the day of a loved one's burial to symbolize and to display how much they love them. Think about us buying very expensive tombstones and, and caskets to honor our loved ones when we put them to rest. We, we do this, we, it's, it's a normal principle, like we don't just discard with the body of our loved ones just flippantly. And Mary, most likely with who Jesus was in her life, thought at some point in his life, like, man, he means something really special to me. I'm going to buy something special for the day that he will die. But because of the events that have transpired, her motivation is, I don't want to do it one day. I'm doing it today. We don't really know her logic in her mind of why she's doing this, but she wants to display to Jesus the value that the relationship that she has to him means to her. So that thing that she bought for one day, she's gonna use it today. That year's salary, full income worth, she's gonna pour it out in a single moment. The gospel of Mark in Mark 14 verse three says that she breaks the neck of the jar like there's no turning back. She's opening it up. She wasn't gonna just dab a little bit out like you did this morning when you tried to smell good to come to church, but she's pouring the thing out. And Mark's gospel also says that she starts to anoint him from the head. John includes from the feet. So most would say that she anointed his entire body. She doused Jesus in this perfume, put it all on him. And in that moment, if you've ever been in a room where perfume or think of just something very strong smelling just breaks open, like everybody starts smelling this. But in this moment, think about these disciples that they are outraged that this smell is not sweet to them like it does actually smell, but the smell almost sours in their nostrils. How dare she? We could have done so much good with this. Judas specifically is highlighted in this moment going crazy in his mind, but we're told that he's the hypocrite. He has no care for the poor. He has no care for the actual ministry that he claims would happen if this goes on. But Mary is honored. Mary has pure love where Ju Judas is a hypocrite and should serve as a warning to us when we're hypocritical of others based on how they choose to honor God. The first thing, if you're taking notes, I just wanna highlight that Mary goes beyond what's expected in this moment. She goes beyond what's expected in this moment because nobody expected this to happen until the day of his burial. But Judas, and if we think of the religious leaders, they tried to make calculated moves for self-preservation. They tried to really go in their lane. Judas says something that's really expected. Hey, we could have done some really good work with this. But Mary in this moment is trying to show Jesus how much he means to her. And that's what she does. She expresses her devotion while he's still alive. And it was symbolic, but most would think that 
She really didn't understand that he was actually going to die. The next thing is, if you think about how much this costs, some of you are doing math right now in your head with your, your salary with perfume, but Mary calculated the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. She calculated that cost. She bought that perfume and then she chose to pour it out. That same Mary that one story earlier had unmatured faith. If you'd been here, you could have done something. Now is seen in this scene, pouring it out as a genuine act to honor and serve Jesus. Where Judas is here not commended for his self-righteous, hypocritical statement that probably the other disciples were like, yeah, that's a fair point. We could have done that. But he is rebuked by Jesus where Mary recognizes the greatness of who Jesus is and shows through her actions, not just her words, but also her actions, what Jesus meant. And the next thing is that you could write down is that Mary in her act displayed a genuine act of humble worship, a genuine act of humble worship before who Jesus is. She probably didn't know what she was doing nor the significance of what it meant in this moment. But because of her act, she was preparing the Lamb of God to be slain, the Son of God to be sacrificed. That once for all sacrifice, that death that he had to die alone. She was preparing him for that burial even when she didn't realize it. What's interesting is the denseness of this perfume many scholars would say if this pure nard perfume with the volume that was most likely poured out would have lingered for days even potentially up to 10 days for over a week and if that is true then that perfume lingered on the body of Jesus days later on palms uh, on palm sunday maybe even up to Good Friday of the Last Supper as he was getting trialed, as he was getting beaten on the way to the cross. Maybe that perfume lingered. That smell of genuine, humble worship of the ones Jesus was doing this for, those who would calculate the cost, that they would give their life as they follow the Savior who gave everything that they could not give because he was the only one who had to die for them. That smell possibly lingered. Because in this story, what we have set up as we prepare to, as you can see up front, take of the Lord's Supper, take of communion. You have these two responses to Jesus. You have one that is responding, this group of leaders and Judas himself, self-centered, self-preservation. What's it gonna cost me? It's better for me if I respond like this. Judas helping himself to the money bag. The religious leaders, Caiaphas, hey, might as well sacrifice one for the rest of them. I'm not willing to give up what it might cost me. And then you have Mary who the best way she knows how 
wants to just display to Jesus that I've calculated the cost, I'm willing to pay, I'm sorry for my undeveloped faith, but I'm all in. And we could pick apart her actions or really sympathize with Judas in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, well, think about all the things they could have done with a year's wage. But Jesus, Jesus redirects the point of like, you've missed it. If that's the question you're asking, you've missed it. Because your eyes are on the material things and not on me. And this is not a conversation of, of benevolence ministry of, well, how much is too much to spend on certain things, which some talk about from this text, but Jesus redirects it and says, no, that, that's, you're missing it. You're, you're getting caught in the weeds in this. You'll always have the poor and there are tons of scriptures of what God says about the poor and those who are needy and downcast of how we as the body of Christ are called to serve those who are less fortunate, that we are the hands and feet of Jesus to care for the widows, the orphans, and those on the down and out and the outcast. Yes, we are called to do that as the church, but this is a conversation about worship, of have you calculated the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? I was talking to Judd this week through text. And we were talking about this Judas heart. There's areas in all of us where we're like Judas, where we're hypocritical. But if we flip the mirror back on ourselves, the mirror of scripture and ask the question of where is my heart more like Judas's than Mary's? Where my desire is to not relinquish control to Christ in my life. For all of us, that's a question we must wrestle with. Where is our heart more like Judas than like Mary's in this? Where are we more concerned with our self-preservation and our desires rather than honest, humble service of Christ? What relationship, what sin, what area of our life have we not surrendered to Christ? Where are you more like Judas than Mary? More concerned with the political power positioning than a heart surrendered of wherever you send me, whatever you ask of me, I'll go, I'll do it. Or are we just so much in the religious routine that we don't even ask the question? That we don't even have enough space in our life to pursue Christ in such a way to ask the question, God, what are you asking me to do next? God, where is it in my life? Have, have I put it on autopilot and not sought after you so much to ask the question because I'm afraid at what that answer might be. And I'm afraid that I won't be like Mary and I won't be willing to calculate the cost and still pay the price even in light of your sacrifice. So I'd rather just keep it in autopilot. I'd rather just, I'll come on Sundays, I'll do my thing, I'll show up to group, I'll just keep moving on. Have you provided enough space in your life to ask the question from God, the Holy Spirit, God, where are you asking me to relinquish control because I still have my grip on it. I'm still not willing to pay that price. This morning, we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper where we remember the price that Christ paid on our behalf. And the scriptures are very clear that we take the Lord's Supper rightly 
or the potential is death. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. If you take in an unworthy manner, Christ's wrath is on you. God's wrath could be on you. So I don't wanna take it lightly or underplay the significance of these next few moments. But as you self-examine, our worship team's gonna come out and lead in one song. I'm gonna ask um, you just to stay where you're at. Don't come and take uh, of the elements yet. There's tables at the front uh, and the back of the rooms. But our prayer team is gonna be down front uh, this morning. And during this next song, it's simply a time to examine your own heart and ask yourself the question, are, are you right with the Lord? And are you in a posture, a heart posture of, I'm all in. I, I, I am right with you, God, and I'm right with other people. Because during this next song, if there's any sin that you may have in your life against a fellow person or against God, it's an opportunity to get right with him. Or I will ask that you don't partake of the Lord's Supper when we do it in a few moments. So simply, this next song is simply to examine your own life. You can stay seated. You can stand and sing. You can bow at your seat and spend time in prayer with God. You can come up to the altar. You can ask a prayer team member to pray with you. Those are all the options on the table. But this time is for you to examine your own life, your own heart, your own relationship with Jesus and ask that question, where am I not right with you? And then get right with him.